And please go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew 12, verse 46. Once again, that's Matthew 12, verse 46. Our passage for today is Matthew 12, uh, verses 46 to 50. Human beings are sort of pack animals by nature. We just sort of naturally, instinctively desire to be in groups. We want to be a part of something. We want to belong somewhere. And we'll express this in a lot of different ways. I can, rem- I can remember when I was in second grade, my friends and I formed the Top Gun Club, of which I was president. During recess, we would run our drills together around the playground, crossing monkey bars and jumping over teeter-totters in one long line of intensity and aggression. Membership in this club was quite exclusive. You had to pass a test created by either me or one of my friends in which you designated whether you want to be a part of the tank, the airplane, or the submarine corps. The grading was rigorous, of course. Not just anyone could join the top gun club, though I can't seem to recall anyone actually failing to pass. We had no end to classmates wanting to join, and I can say with great pride that before long the top gun club was the elite paramilitary organization of Sequoia Elementary. As I got older, my friends and I became interested in sports, and our identity was then defined by the teams that we belonged to. I can still recall the animosity I would feel in my heart towards boys who just days before had been my classmates, fellow Union Grove ponies. And I know we, that's a lame mascot. We were the Union Grove ponies, but that's what we were. And I, I can remember looking at these boys who just days before were ponies and feeling animosity towards them because now that summer had arrived, they were Royals or Yankees or White Sox in our little league, and I was an A. Then as we got older and sports became more competitive and focused on school activities, the attention focused to making the team. That's what mattered, being good enough to make the team. The thing we coveted then was that jersey that we would get when we made the team, that jersey that told us that we were good enough, that we were part of the team, that we belonged. As adults, we still seek the same thing. We want to belong. We want to be a part of a group a community of people that matters. We'll join country clubs or political parties or community organizations. Perhaps we'll become incredibly patriotic and take great pride in our identity as Americans, as belonging to that community. Or perhaps we'll get wrapped up in the company we work for and see our 8 to 5 schedule less of a job that we go to and more of a community of people that we belong to. Companies will even advertise products on the basis of identity. Telling people that if they just purchase X brand of tech tech product or Y version of car, then they'll belong to an exclusive group of people who purchase these products. My brother used to own a Jeep, and I was surprised to find this out, but there's a Jeep community. If you're in a Jeep while you're driving down the road and you see another Jeep, apparently... You're supposed to wave to the other Jeep driver. And they do that. And I remember my brother telling me that and then seeing that happen for the first time and thinking to myself, that's so cool. I mean, here's this whole community of of Jeep people. Again, this is how we are. We love being in groups. If you think about it, this is even part of how we identify each other. For example, my name is Ryan Jokey. Ryan is my first name. 
That identifies who I am as an individual. But my last name, Jokey, identifies the group that I belong to. I am from the Jokey family, or as I like to call us when I want to sound majestic, the Jokey. I tell my boys, I'm going to teach you the ways of the Jokey. Uh, Jokey is... Is a, is, is a shorthand of a Finnish name, Jokinen, which means river people. Historically, my family belonged to the river people. We were identified by that group, that culture. When someone calls me Ryan Jokey, or when I call myself Ryan Jokey, there is built into that name my association with a certain group of people. I am technically Ryan from the river people. That's embedded into our name. We identify each other by the groups that we belong to. Again, as people, this is just part of who we are. We want to be in groups. And it would seem that there is something theological in this. God himself exists as Trinity, which is to say he exists in three distinct persons in one God. God himself expresses distinct personhood in community. And so it makes sense that the people made in his image would, as individuals, crave to belong to a community and find an identity in that community. Most groups have some sort of criteria that establishes who can belong to the group and what is required to join. In my childhood top gun club, we had our so-called exam that had to be passed. Uh, To join the basketball team, you had to have a certain skill set that proved you were able to be on the team. A political organization may require adherence to a certain set of political principles. A country club or some other sort of exclusive organization may require a substantial membership fee. To be in the Jokey family, you either have to have Jokey DNA or you have to be added to the family legally by an existing member through marriage or adoption. Well, in today's passage, Jesus explains membership in the most important, most significant community of all. There are many exclusive groups that a person can belong to, many groups that come with an outstanding set of uh, rights and privileges. And there are even many fundamentally significant groups that a person can belong to, groups that can dramatically shape a person's identity and calling in life. But there is no group that is either more exclusive or more fundamentally significant than the one that Jesus discusses in our passage today. This one will shape a person's identity more than any other earthly association that they can make, and the rights and privileges that accompany a person's inclusion in this community far outstrip the rights and privileges that come with being a part of any other community. And I'm talking, of course, about membership in God's family. Of all the associations that a person can make in their life, of all the groups that they can belong to, there is none more important, none more significant than this one. And in today's passage, Jesus explains membership in this family. He discusses how members in this family can be identified. He explains the significance of membership in this family, and he even hints at how a person can join this family. So let's go ahead and read our passage Uh, for today and take a look at what we can learn about membership in God's family. Let's take a look at what it means to be a part of this community, how we can become a part of it. The passage, once again, is Matthew 12, verses 46 to 50. Matthew writes this, While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. 
For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. We're currently in a series of messages from Matthew 11 to 13 called An Enigmatic Messiah, in which Matthew discusses the various reasons and responses for Israel's rejection of Jesus in spite of the overwhelming amount of evidence that Jesus provided to substantiate his ministry. As we've explored these chapters together, together, several of these passages have been very intricate and complex. It seems like every week we're pulling back layers, layers of historical context, layers of biblical context, even layers of literary context here in Matthew, understanding what has come before this passage in Matthew, before we're able to see the heart of the issue being addressed in the passage. Jesus has responded to the crowd's rejection of his message with answers that are themselves layered with multiple connected subpoints that ultimately build to create a very thorough and complete and powerful answer to their objections. Today's passage is not like these other passages. Its structure is very simple. It's very easy to understand. In fact, there are really only three parts, all of which, again, are very easy to understand. First, there is a request. That comes in verse 46, where Jesus' mother and his brothers asked to speak with him while he's speaking to the crowds, to the people. So Jesus' family is seeking to talk to him. And if we look at this, requ- at this request in context, you can get a pretty good guess at what they're wanting to talk to Jesus about. According to what we see in Mark, it would appear that just before the blasphemy of the Spirit, Jesus' family was looking for him out of concern that he had lost his mind. We forget this sometimes, but even Jesus' family and his brothers in particular, weren't entirely convinced about him. Mary Mary clearly knew who she was dealing with when it came to Jesus. She had received the announcement uh, from Gabriel before his birth. She was there when the first, first the shepherds and then the wise men came to worship Jesus after his birth. At the wedding of Cana, it was she who sought out her son when the wine ran out, knowing that he had the power to do something about it. Mary appears to have been very confident in the identity of her son. His brothers, though, not so much. John tells us in John 7, 3-4, that later on in Jesus' ministry at the Feast of Booths, uh, as, the, as the Feast of Booths near, and as Jesus ceased performing his works with the same kind of openness that he did earlier in his ministry, his own brothers actually ended up mocking him saying, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Jesus was, in the eyes of his brothers, much as Joseph had been in the eyes of his brothers so many years earlier. He was just an obnoxious, deluded sibling, misguided by visions of grandeur. Well, according to Mark 3, verses 20 to 21, it would appear that not long after Jesus had confirmed his messianic identity to John's disciples and pronounced woes upon Kors and Bethsaida for failing to believe in him, he went back to Nazareth, and as the crowd gathers around him, his family became concerned. Jesus is making some pretty ostentatious claims at this point, and he's making a lot of very powerful people angry at him in the process, and so his family is concerned, and they try to seize him. Mark 3, verses 20 to 21 says, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. Well, it's right after that, 
that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit occurs, and Jesus tells the scribes and the Pharisees that they are exceedingly evil men who will not be forgiven by God for their sin, right before then going on to tell the crowds that they are even worse off than the previous wicked generations of Israel, that they are more stubborn, slower to believe, even than the generations that God sent into exile. In fact, they are more stubborn, more hard-hearted, even than the men of Nineveh, And that the only sign he was going to give them from that point on would be the sign of the resurrection, a sign of coming judgment and destruction. Well, if his family thought he was out of his mind before, you can see why they would be really concerned now. That seems to be what's happening here. Jesus is smacking the hornet's nest with a pretty big stick, and his family is concerned for him, and they want to talk to him. Maybe they just want to understand what he's doing. Maybe they want to try to talk some sense into him. But at the very least, it would appear that they're worried. Even Mary is involved, perhaps concerned for the well-being of her son. Now, this would all make sense. It would help make sense of what's going on here if that's why his family is acting. But really, we don't entirely know, right, why Jesus' family wants to talk to him. Matthew doesn't tell us that. Maybe they just want to visit. Who knows? In the end, it doesn't really matter. Matthew doesn't tell us the details behind any of this. He doesn't explain why Jesus' family wants to speak with him, so we probably shouldn't read too much into that either way. Point is, Jesus' family wants to talk to him, and that's really all we need to know to understand this passage. That's the request. His family wants to talk to, 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 they want to talk to him. In the second part of this account, Jesus replies with a rhetorical question. So there's a request first, and then second, a rhetorical question. Jesus says, who is my mother, and who are my brothers? And if we're taking this question on face value, that can seem like a pretty silly question. Jesus surely knows who his family is, right? But that's the point. Jesus isn't asking this question in order to ask who his actual family is. Instead, he's asking it to raise a separate issue and to make a point about that issue. To be specific, Jesus sees here an opportunity to discuss what, which relationships really matter. He sees an opportunity to, to discuss what true family is, what that concept means in relation to the kingdom of heaven. And so rather than to give a simple reply to this very simple request, he instead uses it as an opportunity to teach another lesson about the kingdom of heaven in light of all the events that have transpired here in the second half of chapter 12. We see the point of that lesson expressed in verses 49 to 50, when Jesus says, Here are my mother and brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my mother, or I'm sorry, is my brother and sister and mother. That's the third part of this account, the response. So there's a request, there's a rhetorical question, and finally there's a response. And this response is the lesson of the story. It's the punchline, so to speak. So this is the part of the story that we're going to focus in on this morning. The request and the rhetorical question aren't hugely significant in and of themselves. There's nothing that we necessarily need to learn from these statements by themselves. They're really just there to help set up and explain this response from Jesus. So this is where we're going to focus our attention. We're going to focus on this response from Jesus. What can we learn from this statement? I think we can learn at least two important concepts about membership in God's family from this statement. And really, these are lessons not just about membership in God's family, 
but membership in the Messiah's family, right? Like if you look here, Jesus is talking about who his mother and who his brothers are. He's talking about who belongs not so much to God's family as so much as who belongs to his family. And he's not making that statement simply as Jesus, uh, Jesus from Nazareth. He's making that statement as the son of David, God's promised Messiah. In fact, if you notice here in verse 46, Matthew notes that this whole exchange occurred, quote, while he was still talking to the people. He connects this encounter with what just happened in verses 22 to 45. And of course, there, Jesus performed a sign that demonstrated his Messianic office, a sign that demonstrated his authority to institute the kingdom of heaven. And then the scribes and the Pharisees responded by denying that authority with the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And there's this whole exchange where Jesus rebukes the religious leaders and the crowds for failing to believe in his signs. Well, Jesus is still speaking to the crowds about this issue, about the kingdom of heaven generally, and about, and about his role in that kingdom specifically. When his family shows up, and Jesus asks this rhetorical question, who is my family? When he asks that question, he's asking it within the context of this, of this discussion over his messianic identity. So once again, Jesus isn't making this statement as Jesus, Jesus from Nazareth, the son of Joseph. He's making it in reference to his identity as the Messiah. He's making it in reference to his identity as the long-promised son of David. And he's saying, who is a part of my family? Who belongs to me, the Messiah? So this really isn't a question about who belongs to God's family as much as it is a question about who belongs to the Messiah's family. And on one hand, that can seem like an insignificant sort of distinction to make because as we'll see in just a moment, Jesus, the Messiah, is a member of God's family. But on the other hand, this distinction matters because fellowship with God, membership in His family, clearly comes through the Messiah. Jesus already pointed out once back at the end of chapter 11 when he said in verse 27, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Very clearly, Jesus restricted access to God through himself with that kind of a statement. He himself made it very clear that fellowship with God, membership in his family, came through him. But this wasn't just a claim that Jesus made on his own. This was an expected part of both Jewish and Old Testament theology. It was understood that the Messiah would be sent to establish the kingdom of heaven. He would be God's chosen prince who would rule and reign over the earth on God's behalf. And this meant that in order for a person to have a right relationship with God, they had to have a right relationship with the Messiah as well. In Psalm 2, for instance, the kings of the earth are ordered to, quote, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. And then the psalm concludes, blessed are all who take refuge in him. The whole theology of judgment and the kingdom of God in the Old Testament was built around this idea that when Messiah came, he would destroy everyone who was not worthy of fellowship with God before establishing his rule over the earth. 
He was the sword in God's hand who destroyed the wicked. And He separated out the righteous from the unrighteous at the establishment of God's reign so that only those who were worthy would be allowed to dwell with God in His kingdom. So if you wanted to experience fellowship with God, then you had to get past His Son. He would be the one who would allow that sort of access. And if you were not found worthy of that honor, then He would destroy you and you would not be allowed into God's kingdom. And how would a person be deemed worthy of that honor? How would it be established that they were fit to be a part of God's kingdom? It would be by their relationship with God's Son, who was, once again, God's representative. If a person related well to God's prince, then it was clear that they were ready to live under the rule of God in the kingdom of heaven. And if a person did not relate well to God's prince, then clearly they were not ready for God's kingdom either. So access to the kingdom was gained through the Son, who would establish God's kingdom. And a person would be deemed worthy of entrance into the kingdom based on their relationship with the Son. This is why the kings of the earth are implored to kiss the Son, to pay homage to the Son, so that they would not perish in His way. In Psalm 2. And this is why the psalm says that everyone who takes refuge in the Son is blessed. A person's relationship to the kingdom would be largely determined by their relationship to Him, to the Son. This is the basic idea of how God's kingdom works. So it was simply understood. Fellowship with the Messiah meant fellowship with God. And estrangement from the Messiah meant estrangement from God. So once again, this distinction matters. Here the Messiah speaks of membership not just in God's family, but in His family. And this matters because fellowship with God comes through Him. It comes through the Son. You can't be a part of God's family and not a part of the Messiah's family. Access to God is gained through Him. And this is really a vitally important point to be made in light of what has just happened in these preceding verses. Once again, Matthew sets this whole encounter within the context of the blasphemy of the Spirit that has just occurred. The people have just rejected the clear testimony to Jesus' messianic identity through the Spirit. And Jesus has just explained who will not be a part of His kingdom based on this blasphemy. Now as Jesus begins to talk about His family in this setting, He explains who does belong to Him, who is a part of His family. He explains who will join Him in this kingdom. This is what is so important about this passage. This is the Messiah himself explaining who belongs to his family. And in doing this, he is following up on his explanation of who does not belong to him with an explanation of who does. This is Jesus saying, I just told you who will be cut out of my kingdom. Now if you want to know who's going to be in, then this is it. This is my family. These are the ones who I, the Messiah, know and belong to. In other words, this is a passage about salvation. And it's an invitation. Jesus isn't using this moment as an opportunity to talk about His love for His disciples. That's not the point of this statement. This statement isn't about Jesus simply reassuring His disciples by telling them that they have been accepted by Him and they are loved by Him and a part of His family. Rather, it's about Jesus telling the crowds, telling unbelievers, look, if you want to be a part of my family, if you want to be in my, the Messiah's family, then look right here. 
This is what it looks like. This is, this is what it means. This is an invitation where Jesus is telling the crowds, if you're going to be with me in my kingdom, then this is how. This is my family. From Jesus' response, we can make at least two observations. We can learn at least two lessons about membership in the Messiah's family. These two lessons are as follows. Lesson number one. The Messiah's family is a spiritual one defined by faith, not a physical one defined by blood relation. The Messiah's family is a spiritual one defined by faith, not a physical one defined by blood relation. So once again, Jesus' family comes to him with this request, asking to see him. And in this setting, Jesus uses this request to discuss what it means to belong to the Messiah's family. And so he replies with this rhetorical question that raises this issue about how the Messiah's family is defined, saying, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And then in verse 49, Jesus stretches out his hand towards his disciples and says, here are my mother and my brother. He points to his disciples. He points to those who have responded to his message in faith and are following him and receiving his instruction and applying it. He says, they are his family. And then he explains this statement in verse 50, saying, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. In his response, Jesus looks past one form of family, his physical blood relation, in favor of another his disciples. And as Jesus identifies the head of this family, God, which he refers to as my father in verse 50, it becomes apparent that this is a spiritual family. Jesus' mother and his brothers come asking to see him. Jesus says, and someone says to Jesus, hey, your family is here and they want to see you. And as Jesus sits there before the crowds, presenting himself as the Messiah, rebuking them for their failure to believe in himself, and talking about the kingdom of heaven he was sent to establish. His attention turns to the relationships that he possesses as the Messiah. It focuses in on how the Messiah's family is defined. Again, that's the setting for this request here. As Jesus hears this request and thinks about the Messiah's family, his family in that role, he does not think of Mary or even of his father Joseph. Instead, his thoughts go to God. His heavenly Father. Jesus is the physical descendant of Joseph and Mary, yes, but more importantly, as the Messiah, He is God's Son sent into the world to establish the kingdom of heaven. And this is how Jesus' family is best defined in His Messianic office. Not according to His physical relations, but by His spiritual ones. He is the Son of Psalm 2, sent by God Himself, His heavenly Father, to rule over the earth. If you were to look at Jesus in his messianic office and ask, who is Jesus' family? This is where your attention should naturally turn. Not to Jesus' physical family, but to his spiritual one, which is what Jesus does here. And I just want to stress how important it is that, to understand that it is the setting that raises this question. This setting in which Jesus is talking about his role as God's Messiah and Israel's refusal to believe in this message. We can read these verses and I think the temptation is to walk away thinking that Jesus is rejecting his family here. And he's not. 
Jesus isn't discarding his family with this statement. He's not throwing them in the trash as if his physical familial relations have no meaning anymore, no importance. Jesus never rejected or disowned his family or anything of that sort. And in fact, even as Jesus hung on the cross, he cared for his mother and sought to fulfill his familial responsibility to the very end by telling his disciple John to take care of her after his death. Jesus loved his family. And he continued to hold these family ties even after the statement he makes here. So don't misunderstand Jesus' point here. I think it's possible to see this statement from Jesus and be tempted to think that he's saying that a truly spiritual person won't even recognize familial relationships. That those are all discarded once someone enters into this spiritual family that he's describing. That's not Jesus' point. He isn't replacing one kind of family with another. In other words, the two types of family that Jesus discusses here are not necessarily mutually exclusive. Rather, the idea is that this request is made in a context that provides Jesus with an opportunity to discuss the meaning of family according to the kingdom of heaven. He's not hearing this request from his family and saying, No, I won't see them. They're not my family anymore. Instead, he's using the request as a launching point to discuss his Messianic family. He's sitting there before the crowds, discussing his role in the kingdom of heaven with them. This request comes up before the crowds. Jesus, your family wants to see you. And in the midst of this discussion, he, returns to the, he turns to the crowds as the Messiah and says, Let me ask you, who is my family? Who do you think my family truly is? He's really pivoting away from the question being asked and he's using that request to raise the bigger issue concerning the Messiah's family. So who is the Messiah's family? Who belongs to him? Who is a part of this spiritual family? Again, that's a vitally important question to answer. The answer to that question will determine who will and who will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus asks this question, he's essentially telling the crowds that he is about to explain to them who does and who does not belong to him. He's, showing, he's going to show them what it takes to enter into the kingdom of heaven. He's going to explain to them what marks out those who he deems worthy of God's kingdom. So what is that? What is it that defines this spiritual family? If it's not blood, then what is it? Jesus explains as he points to his disciples in verse 49, declaring, Here are my mother and my brothers. And then continues in verse 50, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. What is it that marks out the Messiah's spiritual family? Quite simply, it is obedience. Obedience is what demonstrates that a person is part of Jesus' spiritual family. Now, there are a few different ways that we could read this statement. We can most definitely understand that Jesus is not saying that obedience earns a person's way into his family. That sort of statement would contradict everything, we else, everything else we know about Jesus and the gospel throughout the New Testament. The Bible nowhere indicates that a person earns membership into God's family through obedience. So we can talk about the criteria that various groups of people use to qualify or verify someone for membership in their group. There are tests that a person has to pass or there are membership, membership fees that they have to pay. But the scripture is very clear that there's no such thing in this regards as it relates to membership in God's family. 
A person becomes a member of God's family purely by grace through faith. It's a gift. It's completely free. So we can throw that possibility out right away when we try to understand this statement. A second option is to consider that Jesus is hinting at the concept of spiritual regeneration with this statement. From the rest of the New Testament, we can understand that obedience comes through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who empowers a person to obey God's commands. Well, it may be more than a coincidence that Jesus speaks of family in the context of obedience because when the Scripture speaks of this regeneration of the Spirit, it often speaks of it with familial terminology. For example, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Adoption who testifies to the fact that we are children of God, according to Paul in Romans 8. In John 3, Jesus explains to Nicodemus that if anyone wishes to enter into the kingdom of heaven, then he must be born again by the Holy Spirit. Perhaps alluding to this entrance into God's family. Perhaps this is what Jesus means when he says that those who obey the will of his Father are those who are his brothers and sisters. After all, it says in 1 John 3, 8-10, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God has appeared uh, was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Clearly, according to that passage in 1 John, obedience comes from this new birth, this spiritual adoption into God's family through the Spirit. The one who uh, is a part of God's family does not sin, does not practice sin. Why? Because God's seed abides in him. Referring to the Holy Spirit. Perhaps this is what Jesus has in mind when he says that those who obey the will of his Father are his brothers and sisters. Personally, I don't think that's what's happening here. There's no mention of the Spirit here or even in the immediate context, at least not in a regenerative sense. Plus, in context, it would seem that Jesus is making this statement in order to invite people into his family, not merely to explain how to identify his family, which is all this statement would become if Jesus is speaking of the familial bond of spiritual regeneration. I think the more likely option is that when Jesus makes this statement, he is saying that he, the Messiah, recognizes those who obey the will of his Father as family. In other words, as the Messiah, Jesus accepts those who are obedient to his Father. He approves of them. And he regards them as family. He considers considers them a companion. He is the Messiah, God's Son, sent into the world to establish the rule and reign of God over the earth. That's what he delights in. He delights in the will of his Father as his Son. That's what he's working towards. He's working towards the will of his Father established in all things. This is what it means for him to be God's Son. He submits to and delights in the will of his Father. And so when he sees another individual sharing that delight, rejoicing in the Father's will, he sees a brother or a sister, or a mother. He sees family. Those who seek to be obedient to God 
are submitted to the same Father that Jesus is. And so in His eyes they are family. And they have His approval. Whereas everyone who does not submit to the will of God, they are not Jesus' family. They are opposed to the will of His Father, and so they are enemies. This seems to be the basic idea. Jesus has just finished this rebuke of the religious leaders and of the crowds that refuse to accept His message. He has warned them that they will be condemned in the day of judgment. And now this request comes, and as Jesus sees this request, He sees an opportunity to discuss those who will find approval in the day of judgment. It is those like these disciples here before Jesus who are seeking the will of God, who delight in God's commands, who see those commands as good and desire to be obedient. These are the Messiah's friends. They are His family. They will be accepted by Him and enter into His kingdom. Now, it can sound like I'm saying that a person must be made worthy of the Messiah's approval through their obedience when I say this, as if it is their own personal righteousness that will save them but if we're understanding the statement in context, in the context of who these disciples are and what Jesus has said during His ministry, then we can see that that is not the point here. When Jesus says that it is those who obey the will of His Father who are His family, He is not saying that some standard of obedience, some measure of righteousness must be performed in order to be considered worthy of acceptance into His family. Like if a person just gets their act together and behaves properly, then Jesus won't be angry with them anymore and He'll accept them. Actually, we just saw last week that Jesus condemned that sort of thinking, which was actually taught by the scribes and the Pharisees. Rather, it would seem that Jesus' point is that He approves of those that seek the obedience that God demands. Remember, Jesus is calling for repentance in His ministry, not perfection. And if we understand that the obedience that God desires is the obedience that has been proclaimed by Jesus throughout His ministry, then we can understand that what God desires is not mere performance, right? But dependence and faith. That's what Jesus has taught that the meaning of the law was. And this is what these disciples are exhibiting. They want to pursue the perfect righteousness that Jesus is demanding. They know that that standard that He has taught is true. They approve of it. They want to be conformed to that standard. And yet they also understand that they cannot do this on their own. And so they're coming to the Messiah, asking for His mercy, asking for the Spirit that He has promised to give them in order to transform them. Faith working itself out in love is the obedience that God requires. And that is what these disciples are seeking. This is not a self-righteous obedience that Jesus is referring to here, but an obedience built on humility, dependence, and faith. So even though Jesus points to obedience here, make no mistake, there's, no, there's nothing works-based about this statement. Jesus is approving of those who are seeking the will of His Father. He considers them brothers, sisters, family. But these are those who understand that the obedience that God requires is an obedience that comes through faith. So then we can see what Jesus is saying about the Messiah's family with this statement. His family is spiritual, defined by faith, not physical, defined by blood relation. Now the thing you need to understand is that this may not seem like an incredibly shocking statement for Jesus to make. At least not to you or me, but it was. For Jesus to state that He... His, the Messiah's family, was a spiritual one based on faith, not a physical one 
based on blood relation. That was an absolutely stunning statement for this crowd to hear. And the reason is because with this statement, Jesus is saying that membership in the Messiah's family would not be established by purely ethnic criteria. And that's what Israel expected. They assumed that as descendants of Abraham, as children of the promise, they would naturally be a part of God's kingdom when it was established. And yet here is Jesus saying that actually it's not going to be that way. It's not going to be that way. Only those Israelites who do the will of His Father are going to enter into the kingdom, and the rest are going to be shut out. You see, on one hand, this statement that Jesus is making here is one of exclusion. Jesus is saying that everyone who does not seek the will of His Father in the way that His disciples are seeking His will, they are going to be shut out of the kingdom. He doesn't care who they are. And I mean, think of the extent to which Jesus is saying this. Here is his own family seeking to speak with him. And Jesus is essentially telling the crowds, just so you know, if they do not seek the will of my Father, even they have no part in me and they will be shut out. The only criteria that Jesus is going to use in determining the citizens of his kingdom is whether or not the individual exercised the faith and obedience commanded by God. And if a person does not practice that sort of righteousness, it doesn't matter who they are, he will not recognize them and they will be shut out of his kingdom. Can you grasp the significance of this statement, the power of it? I mean, do you realize that Jesus is saying this in reference to no less than Mary, his own mother? Jesus loves Mary, as we said earlier, and he's going to love her to the end of his life. But at the same time, as precious as Mary was to him, he loves the Father yet more. And if Mary did not seek the will of the Father, then even she could have been shut out of the kingdom of heaven. That sounds brutal. On one hand, this statement is a statement of exclusion, and it it can sound flat out brutal. But understand, there's actually something quite beautiful in this statement as well. And we can see that beauty in the second lesson that we learn about the Messiah's family from this passage. The second lesson is this. The Messiah's family is open to anyone who comes in faith. The Messiah's family is open to anyone who comes in faith. Yes, this is a statement of exclusion. Everyone who does not seek the will of the Father has no part in the Messiah. It doesn't matter what their physical relationship is to Him. It doesn't matter whether they are fellow Israelites or even fellow members of the tribe of Judah or even Jesus' own immediate family, His own mother. If a person does not seek the will of His Father, then they have no part in Him. It doesn't matter who they are according to the flesh. They are not a part of Jesus' spiritual family. But on the other hand, this is a statement of inclusion as well. Jesus says in this passage, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And think about who Jesus is pointing to as he makes this statement. Here's the Messiah, God's chosen prince, pointing to his family, or pointing to his disciples, 
saying, these are mine. And who is he pointing to when he makes that statement? He's pointing to a handful of insignificant fishermen. He's pointing to a religious extremist, a tax collector, and a few other basically unremarkable men. I mean, these aren't especially wise or powerful or even righteous men. They're really a bunch of nobodies. And yet here is the Messiah motioning before the crowds to these men, saying, do you see these guys right here? That's my family. Those are my brothers. This is amazing. As brutal as the exclusion implied by this statement can seem, the inclusion of this statement is twice as gentle and wonderful and sweet. Do you understand that with this statement, Jesus is saying that He, the Messiah, God's Son, is willing to call you, you, His brother, His sister, His mother. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how much money you have in your bank account. Or most of all, it doesn't matter how much of a sinner you are. Jesus is willing to be your brother. Your family. I don't know about you, but I'm incredibly encouraged at this thought. I mean, I know a lot, I've known a lot of people over the years who seem to think that they were too good to want to make any sort of association with me. Just for whatever reason it might be, either they didn't want to talk to me or know me, or maybe they didn't want to be seen with me because, for whatever reason, because they'd be embarrassed for others to know that I was their friend or something like that. Regardless, there are a lot of people that have found there to be something lacking in me, and because of that, they didn't want to call me their friend. And yet, here is the Messiah himself, perfect man of perfect God, the ruler of all things, and he's saying, I will call you brother. This is astounding. And all that I must do for that to happen is to let go of my insistence for sin. I don't have to be sinlessly perfect or anything like that. I don't have to clean myself up before I find this acceptance. I just have to stop stubbornly rebelling against my God and turn to Him in repentance and faith, asking for His mercy to forgive my sin and for His grace to cleanse me of it. In short, I just have to ask I just have to come to God and say, forgive me for turning away. Will you accept me again and make me a son? And he will say, yes. And Jesus will call me brother. Does that sound appealing to you? To be called Jesus' brother? To be known by the Savior of the world and the Creator of all things? If so, understand that right here Jesus shows you how it can happen. How you can be called his brother or sister. And he invites you into his family. All you must do is repent. Turn away from your sin and turn to God by accepting His demands and you will find acceptance from His King, Jesus Christ. And to be clear once again, this is not merely a call to clean yourself up, change your behavior in order to make yourself right with God. No, this is a call to do what these disciples did. Recognize what Jesus has explained in this gospel about righteousness. Understand it as true. Understand that it is a standard that is far higher than you can ever meet on your own. And then come to Christ in faith, asking for His grace to make you acceptable in God's sight. That's what the disciples did. That was the obedience that God desired. That's what Jesus is praying here. Praising here. And if you do that, if you come to God accepting His demands to that degree, to the degree that you are humbled by your sin and come to Christ in faith, then you can and will be forgiven and Christ will be your brother 
and you will have fellowship with God. So if that's where you stand with the, stand this morning, if you recognize that you're a sinner who's been cut off from fellowship with God due to your love for sin and the stubborn rebellion of your heart, repent. Turn from your sins so that by faith you might be accepted into the family of God where there is blessing and joy and life. And if you've already done this, I'm assuming if you're coming here to worship Christ this morning, then, you, then most of you have. If you're already a part of God's family through the obedience that comes by faith, then I would urge you to do two things. First, I would urge you to look around this room and realize that you're among family. We can often forget this point in the church. I think we can easily slip into a mindset where we see church as an event and we see the people standing around us, singing with us and hearing the sermon with us just as nothing more than fellow spectators. That's not true. That's not what this is. You're sitting amongst family. And really family in a far more meaningful sense than even your own flesh and blood. This is your spiritual family. These are the children of your Heavenly Father. And these are the brothers and sisters of your Savior. While death may separate you from your your blood relations, your kin, these are the ones that you will be praising God with forever and ever. So realize you're among family and maybe spend some time thinking about how that should affect the way you live with one another. That's the first thing that I would urge you to do. But second, and most importantly, I would urge you to praise God for accepting a sinner like you into His family. You don't deserve to be in fellowship with God. Jesus really is too good for you. He really shouldn't be called your brother. But praise be to God who adopts unworthy sinners and makes them a part of His family. Rejoice in that truth. Rejoice in the glory of God's grace. In fact, let's go ahead and do that as we close together in prayer this morning. Let's pray.